So the number one thing with mold is cognition. So it could be impaired memory. In fact, um, Dr. Dale Bredesen's research, he says one in three early onset dementia are related to mold. Welcome to the Your Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. Today, you get to hear from Dr. Jill Carnahan again. This is part two of a two-part series that is absolutely packed with gems. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and listen to that first to hear her amazing story she will expand on today. Next, we'll talk about all things biotoxin illness, specifically mold and lime, and she'll talk about the importance of your flow state and of curiosity. Let's get started. back to biotoxins, also just still on this topic of toxins, right? So maybe you could share how you were unfortunately, sadly exposed to mold and then what additional, after everything else you'd been through, what additional impact this had on your health? Yeah. So cancer 25, Crohn's at 26, got through those, went on to move to Colorado, started a practice. I was running, hiking, doing really well in my late thirties. And um, 2013, there was a massive flood. Sadly, as you guys have watched the news all over now, there's floods. It's been more and more fires. Mm-hmm. We've had floods. several here in Iowa. Yep. Friend of Vermont. And you mm-hmm. can name many of them. Yep. But all I can say, we had a massive flood early on in Boulder and survived it, thought everything was great. But in my office building, which was um, probably having an issue before, but the, the water damage exacerbated it. And that following year, I started to have really severe fatigue, exhaustion, red eyes, brain fog, trouble remembering names and words, word finding issues, and on and on and on. And I was like, something is not right. I was just going downhill and ended up, I did an inspection in the basement, found bulk stachybotrys, which is a really nasty black mold. And then I did testing for my urine to see if that would match the kind of toxins and I was excreting in my urine, trichosethenes, which are mycotoxins made by that black mold stachybotry. So I knew there was an issue. And literally the day that I got the test back, it was after Christmas, right after Christmas on 2014. I never again set foot in my office. I literally walked away, just took patient records. You knew too much. You're like, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. And now I know not everybody has to do that or even can do that, but I had a landlord that wasn't willing to fix it. So it wasn't a thing where I could remediate. I had no choice but to walk away. And it was one of the hardest things in my life because not only was I walking away from like 20 years of medical school textbooks, my office, like everything in there, I walked away. I started over except for patient records. Everything else was, was starting over. But the bigger thing was my health was so valuable. I realized it was worth walking away. The other thing about it was in that time when you're in mold, you're overwhelmed, your insight is impaired sometimes, you're exhausted. So it was also hard to do it while I'm super toxic from mold. But what ended up is what happens in a lot of my life is I had to really learn how to heal myself. And it started Mm -hmm. with how I heal myself before I could heal anyone else. And so I really learned deep dive into detox from mold and how you need to focus on liver gallbladder function, your bowel function, binders. And we can certainly talk about any of that. But I took, you know, the next 18 to 24 months to really heal from mold. I want to go there, but let's rewind just a little bit for the listeners. How would they know they may have been exposed? Like, can we list some other symptoms? I use a symptom questionnaire with my patients, but what are some other cues to listeners that mold may be a problem for them? Yeah. So the number one thing with mold is cognition. So it could be impaired memory. 
In fact, um, Dr. Dale Bredesen's research, he says one in three early onset dementia are related to mold. Wow, so I didn't know that. Yeah, or early I want to take his program. That's on my to-do list oh, this year. Amazing, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so he's seen that and he's not the mold expert. He just sees it in his work mm-hmm. with dementia. Certainly older people too, but like early onset dementia, it's very common. So if you're starting to have brain cognition issues, memory, focus, concentration, Number one symptom. Number two, mast cell activation, which has been a real hot topic. Mm-hmm. Mold is a huge trigger to mast cells. So anything related to that, which could be rashes, irritation, congestion in sinuses, trouble breathing, burning in the lungs, chronic cough with no resolution, and then things like leaky gut. So all of a sudden you're sensitive to way more foods. You can't tolerate other foods. Are you getting rashes after you eat? Are you getting um, swollen lips? Or you're becoming more allergic to things and more sensitive to your environment? Um, muscles can also cause a uh, heart palpitations mm-hmm. or uh, neurological things like numbness and tingling, weakness and dizziness, lightheadedness. Uh, there's so many different things in different systems. Even nuance at autoimmunity can be related to mold. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Okay. So let's talk about how we can detox from that. Although I will say before we get to that number one piece of advice, which obviously you, you heeded yourself is to remove yourself from the exposure, right? You have to get away from the exposure in order to truly heal. So after you've removed yourself from the exposure, And I'm going to bring on this season also in the podcast, more home remediators and just tips on how to build a non-toxic home. And we're going to get there, listeners, because that I think is sometimes a hard part too, especially in Iowa, because we don't have building biologists here. We don't have a lot of access to, I'll say specialists that some of the other more progressive states do, but we'll get there. So at least while I have you here today, let's more or less move on to how you do detox for mold. So previously you said supporting the kidney and liver. And I know you created a a specific binder product with Quicksilver Scientific that we carry here, that black box. So can you kind of go into some of those steps as far as detoxing for mold? Yeah. And I wanted to emphasize just what you said is if you are experiencing mold and you know there's mold in your home, you don't necessarily have to walk away from everything like I did, but you have to fix the problem. So you Mm -hmm. either have to remediate. And let's talk that real quickly, because if you... Even if you use a regular remediator, you can go and you tear out the wall and you need to, you know, have margins and all the right things. You need to contain that space so it doesn't blow out mold toxins and fragments all over the house. Um, but the bigger thing is, say you remediate correctly and you've gotten rid of the mold in your house. Before you ever found that mold, it was secreting mycotoxins. And I equate this like to a fire, like the spores in the mold are like a fire creating smoke. Well, that smoke damage to your home is still there after you've removed the fire, Right. So part of people really getting well and part of um, unsuccessful or failed remediations is not that they didn't remove everything appropriately, but often it's because the mycotoxins got distributed in your books and your bedding and your furniture. Mm -hmm. So you really need to fog and then usually clean. We call it a small particulate clean. And this is something that, I mean, you can have a specialist do it. It's very expensive, but you can even do it yourself, hire cleaners. They just need to be very detailed and wipe down and clean everything in your home and maybe get rid of some of the porous products. So that makes successful remediation. Then your body, what do you do with this? Because when you inhale mycotoxins or mold into your body, you can either become colonized in the sinuses or the gut, but not everybody's colonized. Sometimes you just get exposure and immune system goes haywire. But whatever it is, you need to get those toxins out of your tissues into the bloodstream where the liver and the kidney and the skin and the lungs can filter. So we focus a lot on the liver gallbladder pathway because this is a real easy way to address this. 
And what you want to do is increase production of glutathione. You either take it, you can do it IV, you can do it liposomal. Um, and then that will cause the liver to dump the toxins into the bile and it's stored in the gallbladder. And then it secretes it into the gut. And the enterohepatic circulation of bile is very efficient, about 95%. So, so you need to interrupt that and actually do something to grab that bile and escort it out through the stool. And that's where binders can come in handy. Yes. And there's a lot of research on clay, charcoal, glycomannan, chlorella, and uh, even probiotics like sac- Saccharomyces or N-acetylcysteine, which is not a probiotic, um, but anything in those realms can bind those toxins. There's also prescription binders like cholestyramine and Wellcall, and these things will help escort those out of your body. Typically, when we do that, liver support, glutathione, other things would be N-acetylcysteine, um, lipoic acid, milk thistle, uh, vitamin C, selenium, and of course, many, many other things. So those are just some of the basics for liver. And then pulling it out with binders and then things that really enhance secretion from the tissues is infrared sauna yes. uh, and salt baths, like I mentioned, uh, even coffee enemas, which us medical people don't talk about a lot, but that can really stimulate the liver to produce more glutathione. Well said. You're just going. You're just rattling it all off. <laughs> That's good. That's good. I want to also kind of differentiate mold from Lyme because there can be some overlap in symptoms. And living in Iowa, we do have a lot of patients who have Lyme disease that we're finding. What are some cues you're listening to with your patients as far as, and many patients, to be clear, have Lyme and mold illness, but what are some of the cues or clues you're hearing from your patients that are kind of leading you down the direction of, yep, we need to explore Lyme versus mold? Okay, love this. The first thing I want to do is frame almost all chronic complex illnesses to buckets. It's toxic load plus infectious burden. And so, and they play together because if you have old Epstein-Barr that you got mono when you were 19, or you had chickenpox at five or you got bit by a tick at 24 and you have Lyme, those things can be dormant and not bothering you. And you might feel great. You might test positive, but you're actually feeling fine. But what happens is that, so that would be infectious burden. You have some things that probably we've all been exposed to and you you have a different conglomerate than the other person. But then when you get in a toxic environment, so whether it's parabens, phthalates, uh, VOCs, uh, toxic smoke from wildfires or mold, which is very common, this weakens the immune system, allowing these old dormant infections to start to pop up and create havoc and symptoms. And the well reason said. Yes, well said. And the reason that's important is because when you understand that mold is always first if there is a mold issue, because sometimes you get out of the mold, you detox the body, you restore immunity to normal, and you don't even have to be aggressively treating Lyme. So the first thing is always, if they do present with Lyme, do they have a toxic environment? Because even before you want to detox or treat um, the Lyme, you want to start with that environment and start to at least do a little bit of detox sure. to be more successful. And those interplay understanding that is like, well, why do I have both? Well, both because often you get in the moldy environment, weaken immune system, and Lyme starts to pop up. But then your question was, how do you differentiate? How do I know yeah. which way to go? So the number one and two things with Lyme are going to be chronic pain of some type, typically joint, and it's migratory. Mm-hmm. So one day it's shoulder, one day it's the knee, next week it's your back. And people can have chronic neck and back issues, even with findings on MRI or x-rays that also have Lyme because typically Lyme will go to the places of your weakest link. So if you have chronic neck pain, it might be exacerbated by the Lyme or you have chronic low back pain. That's a real issue, but it could be made worse by the Lyme. So I've seen a lot of people was like, oh, well, I just have a back issue, but it's actually Lyme creating a lot more pain and inflammation or an old knee injury because it'll go to those places. And then fatigue. Now, mold can absolutely cause fatigue. It's one of the number one symptoms there too. But if that pain and fatigue I feel like that is a much more classic presentation of Lyme. 
whereas mold is the cognitive dysfunction, the brain fog, mm-hmm. the inflammation, the autoimmunity. And both mold and Lyme can cause autoimmunity. So order of operations is limbic system first, which means get a, get rid of the trauma if you, at all possible because these things are traumatic to start to do some work on. That was healing. my next question. You're getting ahead oh. of me. No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. Go there. Go there. Go there. Yeah. We'll go back to that. So we'll come back right back to that. But you have to start there and you have to start something with that limbic because we know I did the research in my book and basically a chemical exposure through the nose stimulates hypothalamic pituitary access to trigger amygdala fight or flight. So even if you're like, I'm fine, I'm in mold again, but I'm going to be okay. You still get a trigger of a, a fight or flight response. So that's number one. Number two, if you have mast cells involved, they have to be calmed down or you won't get anywhere with treatment. And then number three is the toxin and the mold and the toxic load. Number four or five is the infection. So Lyme ends up being down the road a little bit. Now you can do these uh, simultaneously, but you have to start somewhere. So I would start in that order. Well said. All right. So I agree with all of that. <laughs> Chapter five of my book is more about all of this, about tackling the laundry, aka detoxing the body. And this is just something that everybody needs to hear. And I hope all functional medicine practitioners are really addressing. Now, something I did not dive into in the first edition of my book back in 2017 was trauma, which is also a toxin. I just didn't know a lot about it back then. Um, but I've since had several guests come on the show that have talked about the adverse childhood event score, who have shared their personal transformations, um, who have gone through a lot of unfortunate childhood trauma. And I so appreciate them sharing their stories and you sharing some of your story in your book as well. And trauma is something that's obviously personal. So it's hard to like talk about on the podcast. Um, But you've been forward in your book, of course, talking a little bit about this. So can we go there? Can you I guess you've already brought to you know the listeners awareness how important trauma is, and we can get into limbic system retraining. But when did you recognize trauma was a part of your story? And then I guess we'll get into the work you did again to heal from that. I love that you bring this up. And you're right. Even five, 10 years ago, even functional medicine, we weren't talking about trauma. Mm-hmm. And I think the next phase of functional medicine is going to be including this in our yes. It's so powerful. For me personally, I didn't know I had trauma. I wasn't even thinking about that. And I always say I lived from the neck up before 40. So I was very analytical. I was all up here in my head. And it's funny because that can actually be a trauma response where we use our analytical mind to look at a situation we don't feel. So we're kind of dissociating from the feeling about a trauma or a difficult event. Even my breast cancer, I look back and I was completely dissociated from the feeling. I was like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to mm-hmm, be, mm-hmm. you know, tough. And I got through it. But I, as I've dealt with trauma, I actually started feeling back to that, you know, 25 year old and having such deep compassion. I'm like, oh, sweetheart, you weren't very kind to yourself. You were just like right back at the rotations right after surgery and not really feeling, not allowing yourself to feel. Right. Now, Dissociation is a beautiful coping mechanism. It's not always bad because when we dissociate, we can deal with it's one of the reasons why you and I going through medical training can deal with an emergency in the ER. We can just dissociate from that, you know, seeing someone who's got a limb that's, you know, uh, torn or, you know, something really awful. Uh, I went through the fire, the uh, burn unit at Loyola. It was horrific. It was horrible. Yeah. It was my least horrific. favorite rotation. Yeah. <laughs> and, and seeing that you can't, if you have that deep, deep compassion, you're in your body, yeah. you're like, Oh, this is horrible. I can't, you know, so you have to dissociate to some extent to be a good objective physician, but we, we went to such a degree. And by doing that, then I don't think about the trauma or any of that. But after 40, after I went through a divorce that kind of woke me up to what peace trauma had to do with my healing, I really, really dove deep. I did EMDR, NLP. I did a bio, um, different biohacking things. I did uh, brain spotting. I did uh, family systems therapy. You name a type of somatic-based therapy, I've probably done it. And all of those things work together to allow me to become more associated with my body And to become more associated because our body, if you're out there listening and you're sick or you're not feeling well, it gives us clues. 
And if we clue into what those are, then we start to associate and be able to make good decisions based on, oh, my body's telling me this is a bad environment or a wrong relationship or a toxic mold in my house or whatever. And as we start to associate, we can become more attuned to those signals that our body gives us and start to make better choices. And by dealing with that old trauma, we can really become more embodied is the word. And I'm certainly not the expert, but I've lived it and I live a much more embodied way. And what that brings to my practice now is as I listen to patients, I'm hearing them on multiple levels. I'm hearing them here with my mind and making decisions, but I'm also hearing them with my heart. And often there's an intuitive sense of a direction to go and we prove it with the labs or the science, but I'm listening much more with my heart. But I couldn't have done that if I was living from my neck up here in my head before. So this is a hard question, but where do you start? Like I I now in the last few years have been more screening and listening, right? For that history, screening for my patients, history of trauma and listening for that too. But again, in Iowa, the part I find more difficult is like even finding trauma therapists, like there just aren't many around here to even refer to. So where do you start? I know you mentioned tons of tools that you utilize. Do you have just a favorite or (laughs) such a complex topic where I'm asking you to simplify, but you got it. And this is, I have no association, but as for so patients, there's a bunch of things that people can do online with themselves. And not, yes. it's not perfect. But yes. for someone, like you said, is maybe yeah. in a different country or in Iowa where there's no somatic practitioners. Um, the ones that have been around forever are Annie Hopper's course mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Gupta's course, yep. NRS and those. But yep. one I've just come across that patients are loving, and again, no association, it's called Primal Trust. I was going to ask you about that one. I just heard about that this week from Love Bethel it. Harris. She told me, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And patients are really giving me good feedback. Again, I have no association, but I've heard really good things about that. I was just on their website. Wonderful. Let's also talk about just ways to reduce stress in general. So trauma aside, what are some tips you have for reducing stress? Back to where we started on the mountain, there's a lesson there that's so important. Usually our stress comes from worrying about the past, what we did, how we appeared, what happened, whatever. Or looking and projecting the future and like, what if I can't make enough money? What if I can't pay my mortgage? What if someone I love dies? What if I lose my beloved and you know relationship or any number of things? What if my child gets hurt? You know, all these things that go through our mind. Those are future and past related and we can't control them. And we know from Hans Selye's work that the acronym NUTS describes the things that cause stress. So novelty, U is unpredictability, T is threat to ego or threat to health, and S is sense of control. So if we are um, something new that we don't know what to do with, um, Mm -hmm. it's unpredictable. It's threatening to our health like COVID pandemic was for all of us or um, sense of control. Those things are all going to be threatening. They're going to raise cortisol and they're going to be traumatic. So what we want to do is come back to the present because right now in this moment, all over our conversation and how I'm showing up. And we have control in the moment of what we say or do or how we react. So that's number one is staying present and pulling ourselves back when our mind goes this way or that way, pulling ourselves back to the present. And then number two is reframing suffering. We're all going to have it. Mm-hmm. It is, we like to get insurance policies and all kinds of things to protect ourselves, right? From a horrible event or a loss of nothing wrong with that. But the truth is we don't have control. We think we do. And so if we expect that we are going to suffer and have difficulties, we don't like it. We take pain medicines. We do all these things to avoid suffering. But if we actually embrace suffering and say, what is this here to teach me? And granted, I don't want you or me or anyone else to have to suffer, but it is inevitable. But if we reframe that and say, okay, I'm going to suffer. I hope not soon and I hope not long. Um, And then we reframe it as while we're there, what is this thing here to teach me? What is this thing here to change my soul? And I've gone through so many things that have been incredibly difficult. But as I look back, now I understand, oh, that breast cancer was my first and best medical training about how to be a doctor. 
And it gave me such a deep compassion and understanding that I would never right. have. And it turned into a gift. At the time, I hated it. <laughs> so as we reframe suffering, it really changes our stress. Because instead of being shocked by it, we're like, oh, suffering, here you are again. Darn it. I, I really don't like that you're here. But we know let's get through this as quick as possible and learn in it. And it doesn't become a stressor because we know it's coming and we know how to deal with it. Love that. I was next going to ask you about, you know, you talk about in your book, getting into that flow state. And I was going to ask like exactly what that means. And I feel like you've already kind of answered a little bit of that with your past response. But what do you mean by that flow state in your book? Yeah, this is so important because this is the natural high. So if you know how to get into flow, you will never need drugs or any substance to create an altered state of consciousness because you can just do it with natural things. So flow is that optimal state of number one, 500% increase in performance. So if you want to write a book or do a new career or teach your child to do something or you name a thing you want to do, you're going to be way more effective at it if you're in flow. So what is flow? Flow is that time if you all have a time you remember it. Maybe it was playing a musical instrument where you got lost for three hours creating a new song and all of a sudden three hours passed. And time shortens and all of a sudden it's three, four hours later or it expands to where it feels longer or shorter. You're just not in touch with time. Um, there's usually a sense of euphoria and happiness and joy with what you're doing. And again, it could be a creative pursuit like painting or art or being in nature or creating music or writing, or it can be an athletic thing like big wave surfing or climbing mountains or skiing. So it could be anything in there. And there's a challenge skill ratio where you are about 4% above what you think you can do. So it's just like the rock climbing for me, maybe that was 40% of way more than 4%. Yeah, yeah it, it's this thing where you feel like, gosh, this is harder than I think I can do. But if it's too challenging, you won't finish. So you want just a little bit more challenging than you think. And that'll keep your interest engaged and you won't be bored, but it'll also challenge you to develop new skills. And the physiological thing that happens is you have an optimal state of serotonin, dopamine, anandamide, and oxytocin. So all of the neurotransmitters come together to actually literally give you a natural high. So people love this state when you've been in it before, you want to go back to it. And as I think about these, even a jazz musician improvised, you know, they can be their hours just making this music. So wherever you are, whatever you've done, you probably can think of, oh yeah, I think I was in flow when. And so if we pursue getting into flow and there's flow triggers, like how we do things and even things like caffeine can take us into flow sometimes more easily. Um, but the more you have flow in your life, the more happy you will be and the more productive you'll be. Okay. I also want to, I'm kind of going off tangent, but you also talk about being curious in your book and how important it is to be curious. Can you expand on that? I loved when I saw the research on curiosity and it's, it's one of the most closely related to genius Um, because, and you see this in all of our inventors and people that were like, oh my gosh, Albert Einstein was a genius, right? Or whatever people that we, the reason those, and I just got done talking to Dan Buettner of the Blue Zones today and huge hero of mine. And he described how he was with national, he was an explorer. And he's out there exploring, you know, different things. And all of a sudden he started to see these patterns. And I said, oh, you were curious. And so as I heard his story, it was literally curiosity that allowed him to get a whole group of researchers together to find what makes people live longer. And now, of course, he's got the blue zones and all this information for us to help us. But it was curiosity. So you'll see this. And even as you and I as physicians, um, curiosity is often what drives new discoveries. Mm -hmm. So being curious is one of those things that's kind of magic sauce to your life, because often you find things you would have never found. You go deeper and explore. Um, And even in our lives of like what we think is possible for us, for our life, for our healing, when we say, what else is possible? Is there anything else I'm missing? And we start Mm -hmm. to ask questions. Our subconscious literally goes to work at solving that for us. 
I've had this thing I've done for years is right before I go to sleep, if I have a problem in my life, I'll often pray and then I'll journal about it and kind of put down, okay, this is the situation and then I'll just sleep. But during my sleep time, my mind will kind of chew on that. And there's been so many times where either I wake up at 2 a.m., oh my goodness, I never thought about that. That's the answer. Or I'll wake up in the morning or the next day and I'll have a solution. And the reason for that is I give my subconscious kind of a question or a problem time and then it chews on it. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, you have this aha about the answer. And we all have that ability. I never heard that. That's great advice. Lots of good advice here. We're wrapping up the show, but I have a few more questions for you. So I love again, how you weave your story through the book, but also you advise the reader, just simple take-homes along the way. So you, you do make the complex more simple. And one page that I really liked was the page on important lab tests you think everyone should have run by the time they're 30. So can you share with our listeners who might be maybe new to functional medicine, maybe not because they've listened to this podcast, but what are some of those labs that they should request their provider run? Yeah. So I'm going to give you just a few, but there's like a lot and a lot of details. So if you book, want yeah, info, yeah. on my website and my blog, it's just jillcarnian.com blog. You can look these up and actually read about all of them because you might want more or the book. <laughs> They're in there too. Um, but basic metabolic profile, CBC, all that stuff most doctors are doing. But I advise going deeper to look at iron levels, to look at autoimmune markers like ANA or um, anti-gliadin antibodies, to look at your hormones, your your First of all, thyroid would be TSH, free T3, free T4, thyroid antibodies, reverse T3, um, hormones, estradiol, progesterone, DHEAS, testosterone free and total, cortisol in the morning. That's like a good hormone panel. You can also do DHT, dihydroxytestosterone if you're having hair loss um, and and really look at that hormones. Well, cortisol is important. And I often advise doing a four-point cortisol test through the day basically map your adrenal function. And those are kind of your hormones. We talk about autoimmunity and making sure you don't have celiac. You can check anti-gliadin antibodies and actual TTG, IgA and IgG, which are the markers in our gut if there's permeability based on gluten. And it can actually predict celiac disease if they're positive. And then uh, things like homocysteine, which show our methylation and our B vitamin status, uric acid, super important for inflammation, metabolic health, um, CRP and ESR are inflammatory markers. And most of docs aren't doing these as a routine panel, but the more we look at this, the more we can prevent chronic disease. Love it. Love it. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we get to, I do want to ask listeners where they can find you, but is there anything else that you wanted to mention that kind of is highlighted in your book that we didn't get to and leaving any strong points out? (laughs) No, you have been amazing. But the one thing I leave people with, we've kind of touched on this, is that I'm not unique. And my biggest goal in writing my story wasn't to say, oh my gosh, Joel overcame all these things. Not at all. What it was, was to show you out there listening that this is possible for you too, to just kind of give you a glimpse of actually the day to day. And in there, I talk about my pain and my struggles. And when I cried and when I was like, oh, I can't do this anymore. The reality of the, our humanity is common and I am no different than anyone else. Um, but what I want to do in the book and what I want to tell you today is that you too can have unexpected miracles, which is these things that we think maybe aren't possible, but they really are. And it's all to do with mm-hmm. our mindset, getting curious, finding a functional medicine practitioner or learning what you can online and being an advocate for yourself and your health. Amen. Okay, Dr. Carnahan, where can listeners find you? Yeah, so my website, jillcarnahan.com has everything, podcasts, blogs, um, link to the book, everything you might need. And be sure and go to uh, my my uh, Instagram because I have lots of fun. Yeah, you do. There. Yep, yep. Is Dr. Jill Carnahan um, on Instagram as well. And you're offering our listeners a free chapter in your book. So tell us where they can locate that. Yes. So if you're like, oh, I maybe want to get this. I want to know more. <laughs> the, the story we talk about climbing is chapter one. It's free. 
Just go to readunexpected.com backslash free chapter. And I'm sure you'll put the link, but readunexpected.com backslash free chapter. Grab chapter one and listen to how I overcame the third flat iron. Um, it's all free. And then you'll want to get the book. All right. What is your absolute top longevity tip? You've given us so many, but if you had to narrow it down to one, what is your top longevity tip? That's easy and it's very boring. It's sleep. <laughs> I remember years ago before I knew anything about this, you know, health or went into function medicine and at the girls' slumber party in eighth grade, I was the one who was conked out at like 10 p.m. and they'd like freeze my bra and do all kinds of terrible things <laughs> while I was sleeping. But even back then, I was like, if I came home without sleep, I would usually get sick. And my mother was like, yeah. you're not to slumber party again. Yeah. So way, way back then, I was like, I must be an alien, but I need sleep and I know mm-hmm. it's important. And I remember, again, like probably in high school, I was like, sleep is critical. And it's always been like the number one foundation of what I seek is great sleep because I can handle a lot if I've had a good night's sleep. That's the most common answer. And it's so true. I I totally agree. Well, this was incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I have to tell you, I think we have a lot in common in that both of our mothers were our prayer warriors. I know you mentioned in Unexpected that you said something like you heard that prayers on our behalf are like tears in a bottle that God collects. And I had never heard that. And I just... Yeah, I thought that was beautiful. So thank you for sharing in your book to never give up and that message to our audience today and that each challenge can give us that opportunity to become stronger and resilient. So I hope each of our listeners picks up a copy of your beautiful book and I hope one day to have a fraction of the impact on the world that you have had. So again, thank you for coming on the show, sharing your struggles and for encouraging us to trust our intuition, transform that toxicity. You say so many beautiful things in your book like embrace uncertainty, choose unconditional love and get into that flow state. I would say that this was unexpected, but actually this interview was as expected. It was amazing. So (laughs) you're a rock star pioneer in the field of functional medicine and someone I've looked up to again for years. So it was an honor having you on the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Dr. Gray. And thank you for all the beautiful work you put into the world as well. I have to say, this is one of my favorite episodes of season four. She talks faster than I do, and every word she said still carried such value. I hope after listening to this, you are encouraged that healing is possible for you. Find an experienced functional medicine contractor who can help you on your journey. I'll post links in the show notes to the Hopper, Gupta, and Primal Trust program she mentioned, and of course, I'll post the link for her free chapter as well. I encourage you to do what she said and pursue getting into that flow state. As always, please share this interview with those in need. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I do read all the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, and for how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. This podcast is produced by Team Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.